This is Ron Stockton. This is the most unusual podcast I've ever made. It deals with doctrinal theology, especially the question of whether Christianity is polytheistic. When I taught my class on religion and politics, I would tell students that this is a class on politics. It is not a class on religion. And especially, it is not a class on what you learned in Sunday school when you were 10. The only time we looked at doctrine was when it entered the political system as a political ideology with an organization behind it and political goals rather than goals of personal faith. I would start the semester with a lecture on Feuerbach, the German political philosopher who wrote in 1844 in his book, The Essence of Christianity, that humans create concepts of God that fulfill their own needs. Feuerbach said that any understanding we have of God is filtered through our own human thinking. There's a podcast on Feuerbach that you might like. At a certain point several weeks into the class, I would say to my students, for those of you who are Christians, I have some bad news for you. They are too polite to say so, but some of your Jewish and Muslim classmates have a lurking suspicion that your religion is polytheistic. That was a bit shocking. It is really the idea of the Trinity that creates such confusion. What is this about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And what is this thing about Jesus being divine and being the Son of God? This sounds a bit like something borrowed from Greek mythology. Achilles, for example, was the son of Pilatus, the human, and Thetis, a goddess. Well, as a Christian myself, I find this discussion a bit nervous-making. But let's pause for a minute. If you've listened so far, you have to promise to listen to the very end. This is not a long podcast, but I want you to listen to the end because that is when I will offer you the great reveal. I will read to you some official Christian teachings on the concept of monotheism. That will cut through the debates and clarify what is and is not Christian teaching. What I've discovered is that Muslims and Jews approach these issues very differently. Jews mostly stay away from this kind of discussion. They learned a bad lesson in the 800, 800 or so years ago when their rabbis would be summoned to a debate over doctrine. These disputations, as they were called, never went well for the Jews. They were typically held under the authority of some hardline church leader. Many were during the time of the Inquisition. They were a bit like today's discussions between a believer and a non-believer. The room will be packed, but entirely with supporters of the believer. Supporters of the non-believers stay far away from such events, knowing what will almost certainly happen. Every time the non-believer makes a thoughtful point, the room would fall silent as all eyes turn to the believer, who is obviously going to demolish this false teaching. And indeed, it would happen exactly that way. When the believer would respond, the room would erupt with clapping. What the Jews learned was that discussing theology with a Christian or a Muslim would not turn out well. Of course, not all Jews got the memo. I once had a friend tell me when the film The Passion of the Christ was first run that Jesus was the son of a Roman soldier. Of course, that was from the Talmud, the Jewish commentaries. My friend, who was not religious, had probably never read those commentaries, but he had picked that up, that argument up somewhere and repeated it with confidence. And Mighty Python used it to great effect in the life of Brian to describe Brian's rather loose mother and his ambiguous parentage. I remained silent when my friend spoke 
on that occasion, not wanting to engage in a no-benefit discussion, and thinking back to the times when I had myself made statements rooted more in something other than informed insight or wisdom. I also remembered a conversation with one of my Muslim students. Muslims are more likely to think about these things than Jews. Islam emerged as a confrontation with polytheism and has specific teachings about the existence of only one God. There's even a Quranic passage that says God does not have any sons. He is neither begotten nor does he beget. Anyway, my student, who was very respectful and very open to understanding Christian teaching, asked me to explain these things. I remember what I said. I think theologically it's easier to be a Muslim than to be a Christian. To be a Muslim, all you have to believe is that there is a God and that Muhammad brought a text. That text includes the teachings of social justice. And in the end, we will all be judged by how we live our lives. With those three things, everything else is commentary. Christians believe two of those things, that there is but one God, and that we will be judged by our lives. The part about Muhammad and the Quran is not in their faith, and yet they have a Bible which contains many of the same teachings about social justice and leading a righteous life that Muslims have. But for Christians, I continued, there are two additional teachings that are different from Islam. First, there's the issue of Christology, the nature of Christ, and the concept of the incarnation, the belief that God came to earth in human form, i.e., in the form of Jesus. There is also the concept of the Trinity, that God manifested in three forms. I will admit that these are hard concepts to understand. Regarding the divinity of Christ, there was a 300-year debate among Christians over what it meant by the teaching that Jesus was divine and by the term the Son of God. This debate was very intense at times. Some believers said it meant that Jesus was a human but was chosen for a divine purpose. That's very close to what Muslims who revere Jesus say. Others say that Jesus was an image of a human, but only that. That's very close to what Hindus sometimes say about their gods. This debate got a bit graphic, for example, arguing about whether Jesus had bowel movements and sex urges. In the end, they decided in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon that Jesus was both human and divine. Let me read that for you. Jesus is perfect both in deity and also in humanness. This selfsame one is also actually God and actually man. He is of the same reality as God as far as his deity is concerned, and of the same reality as we are ourselves as far as his humanness is concerned. Thus, like us, in all respects, sin only accepted. For those interested, this is called the Duophysite Doctrine, or Duophysite if you're British, that Jesus is of two natures, fully human and fully divine. Okay, that's the teaching. In a minute, I will read to you excerpts from some other official statements. Meanwhile, there is the concept of the Trinity. I have to be honest with you. This will not make all Christians feel good. I do think some Christians are polytheistic. That is not the official teaching, but that is the way some people think. And how can they not when we chant songs that praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and sing God in Three Persons, Blessed Trinity? 
most of us never think very deeply about theological issues, and this topic is really complex and confusing, and it's easily misunderstood. I remember a painful moment after September 11th when someone interviewed the father of a firefighter who was killed on that day. He said, I asked God to spare my son, but my son died. I will never again pray to God. I will pray to Jesus, but not to God. I'm not inclined to be too hard on a man who has just lost his son, but that statement was polytheistic, as if God and Jesus are of two essences. And then there was that 2007 best-selling book, The Shack. This is the story of a man who took his family camping. To his horror, he discovered that his preteen daughter had been kidnapped. Later, she was found in a shack, raped and murdered. The moral focus of this book was whether the father should forgive the murderer. If you don't forgive, you poison your soul and re-victimize yourself. That is the teaching. I think that is a very powerful teaching. And as I read the book, I could see why people liked it so much. It introduces complexity into our value system. As I said at the time, if someone raped and murdered one of my little granddaughters, I would never forgive that person. Never. But as I had that reaction, I realized how self-destructive that would be and how it would plunge me into a lifetime of bitterness and anger. And I remembered one of my students whose father was murdered. In time, he visited in prison the person convicted of that murder. He came to see that person as a human being, someone with whom he could identify. He even became a speaker on capital punishment and forgiveness. I'm not sure I could do that, but my student was a powerful moral example to me. Well, back to the book and why it was a cause for concern. The book had a metaphorical story in which Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit are in that shack and are interacting as three persons. God is an older man, Jesus is a young Jewish man, and the Holy Spirit is a black female. Octavia Spencer played the Holy Spirit in the film. And she makes a really good Holy Spirit, being a comforter and bringing comfort and reassurance the way many people think that the Holy Spirit does. These, the three of them would have conversations that sounded very normal. Holy Spirit, Jesus, would you like some coffee? Jesus, yes, I would. Holy Spirit, would you like milk and sugar? God, he always wants milk and sugar. Well, I don't have the book in front of me, so I just drew that exchange from memory. But you get the idea. These are three people talking to each other, three distinctive people. I wonder how many congregations had book discussions of that. I know mine did. And I wonder how many ministers told discussants to be careful of possible misunderstandings. I know mine did. Okay, here's a problem. The Christian teaching is that God came to earth in human form so that God could experience what we humans experience. That goes back to the doctrine that Jesus is exactly like you and me, except for his divinity. I know if you are not a Christian, that may sound really bizarre, but are you suggesting that God cannot do whatever God wants to do, even if it makes no sense to us? Or are you suggesting that God is not master of all that exists, including nature and the laws that regulate nature? Does anyone remember that fun but controversial film in 1999 called Dogma? It starred Matt Damon and Ben Affleck as two angels who had been kicked out of heaven by God for misbehavior. 
but they really wanted to get back into heaven. It's an entertaining story with a twist about how they found a glitch in God's expulsion order. But what is relevant to this podcast is what happened in the final scene. They've been hanging around with a hippie girl. She's a virgin. But suddenly there is a ding on the soundtrack, and we realize she is pregnant. God has decided to implant a divine child in her. Of course, Christians in the audience, and a few irritated bishops, insisted that such a thing was impossible. Jesus was the only Son of God. We're told that in the Bible. But the Bible also says that God controls everything between Alpha and Omega, between the beginning and the end. God can do what God wants to do, even if it completely confuses our understanding of God's promises and intentions. And would any of us suggest that God is constrained by our understanding of God's intentions and power? Let's think about that biblical statement that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, come on. Human words totally fail us where things of a divine nature are concerned. Jesus is not a son in the sense that I'm the son of my father. That would be weird, as if God boinked the Virgin Mary. In fact, the teaching is the exact opposite of that. She was a virgin. The Quran has a similar teaching, that when she looked up and saw a strange man in her bedroom, she was shocked and frightened. But he reassured her that he, Gabriel, was just there to deliver a message regarding her miraculous pregnancy. If you believe that God is beyond human comprehension, how could you possibly think that words, human words, such as father or son, are anything other than flawed metaphors? God is God and we are humans. Consider the story in the Gospels about the meeting the disciples have after the crucifixion of Jesus. They are huddled together in fear in what is often called the upper room. Suddenly Jesus, who has been executed, appears before them. This is a terrifying reality given that the door is locked for security reasons. The disciples knew they were on a Homeland Security high-priority wanted list, I suspect. Not only that, Thomas Didymus, the twin, is skeptical about the appearance. He thinks this is an apparition. Jesus invites him to put his hand into the raw wound on his side. Thomas does and shouts that it is real. What is going on here? Jesus appears in a sealed room. Did he just walk through the wall? Did he just appear out of nowhere? Whatever it is, only a god could do such a thing. And then comes the second thing, the open wound. He is obviously a human with a human body. And humans can't walk through walls. Uh, Except maybe in movies sometimes. What do we make of that story? The teaching is clear that Jesus is both completely human and completely divine. As someone who's been Christian all his life, I still can't understand that. But then, what kind of arrogance is this, that I think I could ever understand the mysteries of the divine, something beyond human, Christian, uh, beyond human comprehension? Please, Ron, take a breath. Be modest. Oh, yes. You in the back row, waving your hand in the air. You understand it and will explain it to those of us who are struggling to grasp the divine truth. You do realize that what you are so certain about is your own human understanding, right? Of course, the Trinity is really a difficult concept. The clergy struggle to find metaphors to help the congregation understand. One popular metaphor is that of water. It can be liquid, it can be ice, it can be steam. Three forms, but one substance. I can understand that. 
But maybe that itself is a problem. If I can understand it, doesn't that suggest there is something wrong with the very idea? We all agree that God is beyond human comprehension. Is, is there an inherent contradiction between thinking I can understand the divine truth and the divine truth itself? Hmm. Back in the 1500s, there was a prominent scientist and scholar, theologian, named Servetus. He discovered that the blood circulated through the body long before Harvey got credit for that discovery in 1628, 75 years later. He was a friend of Calvin, with whom he had exchanged discussions of theology. This was a time when Protestants were discarding many Catholic teachings, which they considered not authentic. For example, the idea that bread and wine became literally the blood and body of Christ. Catholics still embraced that, but Protestants abandoned it. In the spirit of reform, Servetus suggested that Christians get rid of the concept of the Trinity. Actually, one obscure Christian denomination did that, but they are definitely not mainstream. And the Unitarians simply affirmed the existence of a divine without any further details. Alas for Servetus, the next time he traveled to Geneva, he was arrested and burned for heresy. Ouch! Oh, wait, what was that word I just used, heresy? Did you know, do you know what that word means? Uh, let me explain. Heresy is a teaching or advocating something that is a fundamental violation of the faith. God doesn't exist. That's a heresy. God is a tree frog. That's a heresy. Riding the shack. Well, probably not. Of course, heresy exists within a belief system. If a Muslim says that Jesus was a prophet but not divine, that is not heresy. Why? Because Muslims are not required to believe in the divinity of Christ. If a Christian says that Muhammad wrote the Quran, that is not heresy. Why? Christians are not required to believe that the Quran was revealed. And if Jews say a Roman soldier was the father of Jesus, that is not heresy. Jews are not required to believe in the virgin birth. I think we need to pause for a minute and recognize that there are two levels of theological thinking. We could call these high theology and popular theology. High theology is characterized by deep study and reflection by scholars, often of the original texts. Popular theology is found in every religion. It is what common people such as you and I think. We can get a bit off base in our thinking and bring into our religion things that we have picked up from our culture or even from our political system. That which we learned when we were 10 in Sunday school always sticks with us. And some of us never move beyond that level of sophistication. We repeat a few phrases and slogans and consider that to be our faith. And there are people who confuse their cultural practices with divine revelation. Have you ever heard a religious leader say, you're supposed to dress the way they do in my hometown. God wants that. Or, you're not supposed to have sex a certain way. God doesn't like that. Or, women are supposed to behave in a certain way. It says that in our holy book. And you can always find a text to support your position. Theologians call that proof texting. All of you can think of examples from this in your own tradition. And for those of you who have walked away from your religious tradition, it often has to do with such cultural intrusions. But continuing with this point of popular theology, there's another way to look at this, a more sympathetic way. It has to do with how difficult it is to grasp the incomprehensible idea of God. 
In a sense, the idea of the Trinity makes God more accessible. God is a creator beyond anything we can imagine. God is a comforter during times of trouble. And God is a human being who understands our struggles and our despair. These are helpful understandings, even if theologically they may create some problems. For those interested in Muslim Christian issues, I just read a really interesting book. It is called Jesus in Muslim Christian Conversation by Mark Beaumont. Beaumont is a research associate in the London School of Theology. He is a specialist in Muslim Christian theological dialogue. Beaumont creates a conversation between two believers, one a Christian Protestant, one a Sunni Muslim. Both are well-read, thoughtful, and respectful. Beaumont, who is not of either of those traditions, is exceptionally well-versed in the thinking of both traditions, so he is able to generate thoughtful interactions between the two. There are ten chapters. <clears throat> They're entitled, Born of Mary, Miracle Worker, Teacher of Love, Proclaimer of the Kingdom of God, Word and Spirit of God, Son of Mary and Son of Man, Son of God, that's a big point of contention, Messiah and Redeemer, Raised from Death, and Returning in Power. What we readers begin to realize is that Muslims and Christians share quite a few teachings. The two discussants are exceptionally well informed about the other religion. Thank you, Beaumont for giving your discussants that depth of knowledge. It helps us readers get beyond argumentation. The two discussants are able to say, your great scholar X says so-and-so, which is exactly what we teach, so perhaps you're not as far from us as you think. But then someone will say on a different point, our great scholar Y says so-and-so, which is completely different from your teaching. I think if you're interested in this topic, you could not do better than this book. It is extremely well-researched filled with quotes from all sides, quite happy to acknowledge similarities, but also willing to acknowledge differences. It is also very readable and not very expensive. My goal in this podcast has been very different from any podcast I've ever done. It is to draw you into the great controversies between Christianity and Islam, as well as Judaism, and to help you understand better some of the complexities of these issues. As I told my Muslim student mentioned above, the Christian belief that God is the creator and ruler of the universe, Christians often say Father, is easy for Muslims to understand. They believe the same thing. And the idea that the Holy Spirit of God will be there to comfort us also makes sense. It is not the way Muslims would say it, but it makes sense. But the real problem emerges with the idea that God came to earth in human form. That's a jump. And Christian theologians did not make it any easier by referring to Jesus as the Son of God and by referring to the Trinity as three persons. I think part of the problem is that we don't understand how other religious traditions think. We often interpret other traditions within the framework of our own way of thinking. Let's diverge for a moment from discussing the Trinity so I can tell you a story about how we can misunderstand each other. Once my congregation had as guests a local imam and some members of his mosque. It was a very nice occasion, but one of the Muslim women raised an issue of headscarves. Why do Christian women not cover their heads? It's in your Bible. Well, indeed it is there, but there's more to it than just the text. 
There is also context and interpretation of text. This was a Presbyterian church, and Presbyterians do not have an authoritative marja the way Shia Islam does, someone who can handle, hand down correct interpretations of text or correct advice on how to observe the teaching of the text. What Presbyterians do have is a great scholar from the 1500s, John Calvin, who wrote a 1500-page discussion of the Bible when he was 26 years old. The man was a genius. It typically took me three years to write a 250-page book, so I'm not sure if Calvin ever slept. The book is called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. It has a passage in which Calvin discusses exactly the text in which our guest was referring. It comes from 2 Corinthians. Paul was writing to a troubled congregation. He was offering advice on how to behave in services. He makes two statements that Presbyterians do not accept today. One is that during a discussion of congregational affairs, women should remain silent. If they have anything to say, they should whisper it to their husband, and he could share it with a group if he thinks it's appropriate. Presbyterians debated for decades over whether to allow women to be church officers or ministers, but they now consider that a normal thing, and a proper interpretation of other texts. The other teaching is that for a man to keep his head covered in a service is as disrespectful to God as when a woman does not cover her head. That is another thing Presbyterians do not accept. Calvin said there were two issues involved in interpreting that text. One is custom, and one is decorum. If the custom in the land is to cover your head, you should cover your head. If the custom is to be bareheaded, you should not cover your head. And regarding decorum, you should never behave or dress in a way that is disrespectful of the religious setting. I remember once a Muslim student asked me why Christian young women would go to services with their arms exposed. Well, I get the point, but no one would consider that improper, especially in a hot summer day. Obviously, the custom is different in Christian and Muslim congregations, and that's okay. Interestingly, Calvin had to address this issue in his personal life. He was pastor of a large congregation in Geneva, where it got very cold in the wintertime. He definitely believed that for him to keep his head covered during services would be disrespectful of the divine. And yet, that was an unheated building. But he came up with a solution. When he delivered a sermon, which he did every day at noon, he would lift the hat from his head and hold it up for a time to demonstrate that he was showing respect for God. Then he would put it back on his head for warmth. Presbyterians today do not expect their female members to remain silent or to be excluded from office, nor do they expect them to cover their heads, nor do they consider it disrespectful for a visiting imam to leave his head cover on. I think the issue is that we often fail to understand how other religious groups think. Okay, now for the part I promised you, the big reveal. I want to read from eight Christian statements of faith as they address the issue of monotheism. Most also affirm the Trinity and the divinity of Christ, but on the question of monotheism, they are unequivocal. Here we go. First, a statement from the Gospel of John. Note that, in the text, the word logos, or word, refers to Jesus. Here we are. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
everything came about through him, and without him not one thing came about. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of a single son from his father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus and God are of the same essence. Then the Council of Chalcedon, 451. Jesus is perfect both in deity and also in humanness. This self-same one is also actually God and actually man. He is of the same reality as God as far as his deity is concerned, and of the same reality as we are ourselves as far as his humanness is concerned. Thus, like us, in all respects, sin only accepted. Uh, this illustrates the duophysite doctrine of the dual nature of Christ. That's also called duophysite, if you're British. And uh, according to this, uh, Jesus definitely went to the toilet. Then the Athanasian Creed of the 6th century. As also there are not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. Not three gods, but one God. The Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, this of course is Catholic. We firmly believe and confess without reservation that there is only one true God, eternal, infinite, and unchangeable, incomprehensible, almighty, and ineffable, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, three persons indeed, but one essence, substance, or nature, entirely simple. The Augsburg Confession, this is a German Lutheran in 1530. We unanimously hold and teach in accordance with the degree of the Council of Nicaea, that here is one divine essence which is called and which is truly God, and that there are three persons in this one divine essence, equal in power and alike eternal, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three are of one divine essence, eternal, without division, without end, infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, one creator and preserver of all things visible and invisible. The word person is to be understood as the fathers employed the term in this connection, not as a part of a property of another, but as that which existed of itself. The Westminster Confession of 1626. Uh, this, is, um, this is Calvinist, but associated also with the Presbyterians. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving inequity, transgression, and sins, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sins, and who will by no means clear the guilty. 
There's a lot of words in there. I got to tell you, they seriously discussed each and every one of those words before they put it in. Then Baptist Faith and Message of, of uh, 1925, this is the Southern Baptist. There is one and only one living and true God, an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, preserver, and ruler of the universe, infinite in holiness, and all other perfections, to whom we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. He is revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. And then the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, which is ongoing, but I have a 1992 uh, version of that. To confess that Jesus is Lord is distinctive of the Christian faith. This is not contrary to belief in the one God, nor does believing in the Holy Spirit as Lord and giver of life introduce any division into the one God. Well, there they are, eight major statements of monotheism. I hope this podcast has helped you who are not Christians understand Christian thinking a bit better. And I also hope it has helped those of you who are Christians to understand your own religion a bit better. Thank you for listening.